Welcome to the Audit Podcast, the number one podcast for the audit profession. Be sure to check the show notes for all of our social media channels and to sign up for the Audit Podcast newsletter. Now, here's your host, Trent Russell. So unfortunately, cybersecurity is not going away anytime soon. It's probably never going away. And so we've tried to talk security on the show and really try to drill down to the, hey, what can the non-technical person do? What do the what do the non-technical folks need to know in order to at least have the conversations with their CISO, with their IT folks around cybersecurity? Uh, even if you're co-sourcing or outsourcing that work, we need to be able to have those conversations. So what we wanted to do this week was have someone that's in security interview someone else that's in security. So the perfect person for that job was none other than Mr. Julio Torado. He leads the internal audit function at Spirit Bank. He was also on the show episode number 24 for anyone that wants to go back and listen to that one. I've seen him present multiple times now. Um, I know he hosts uh, roundtable events for security folks and internal audit uh, folks as well. And so I knew he'd do a fantastic job. He did not disappoint. The guest that he picked to uh, interview this week was Jonathan Kimmett, who is a CISO himself. And they continue to dig into, and it's really great to hear the question, um, dig into, hey, for those that don't have like a dedicated cybersecurity person on their team, or even maybe an, inter, um, an IT auditor on their team, what can they do? Where can they look? Where can they start? And if nothing else, like I said, just to at least be able to have the conversations uh, with the folks that we need to. So some of the topics they hit on are the pressing issues of a CISO. So the the things, you know, what keeps a CISO up at night, which to me, it seems like <laughs> I don't get any sleep. That is one job I do not want. Knowing that you're constantly being attacked is not not a job that I want. But uh, some, some of the pressing issues of a CISO, the history of privacy, which I thought was very interesting. And to Jonathan's point, it adds context to where we are now and why we are here where we are. Um, to, to help us understand better. And I think that was a fantastic point that he made. And then they also talk about resources for the folks that don't have tech backgrounds, but need to know again, how to have that conversation and how someone can develop those skills. So this is a, a fantastic episode, kind of a deep dive into the brain of a CISO and what's going on with security. So to Jonathan and especially to Julio, thank you both very much uh, for your time, and especially the effort. It, it was very obvious in listening back to the episode that both, a lot of both were put into this. So thank you both very much. Here we go. All right, well, Jonathan, uh, thank you for joining us in the Audit Podcast. I'm excited to see you with us to talk many things, cybersecurity. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. I'm excited to be here, Julio. I, I, I'm really glad you reached out. This will be a lot of fun. Well, I appreciate you. I've known you for a few years, so I know that you have a lot of information and goodies to share with the community. So thank you. Thank you so much. But listen, let's just, let's just go straight to it. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Who is Jonathan Kimmett? Oh, wow. Um, I am CISO of the University of Tulsa here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have been CISO for seven or eight years. Before that, I was uh, I was in IT. I was part of services. So I was chief services officer for a time. I kind of worked my way up from the help desk and uh, got into cybersecurity. I don't know, the mid 2000s, uh, 2004, 2005. Um, so I could uh, help out on the uh, computer security response team. Um, and got into, kind of cut my teeth in security on the response team all those years ago. From there, I kind of move up to the ranks in the response team. I eventually started leading it. Um, a few years after that, they asked me to become CISO. And so I, I, I made the, the decision that I would never sleep again. So I took the CISO <laughs> role and uh, been doing it ever since. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're here to tell the tale. I've heard, I've heard that about CISOs. Sleep can be a challenge, <laughs> but let's. It is. It, it can be. Yes, there there are long nights involved sometimes. Well, let's let's pivot on that because I I think a proportion of the listeners of this podcast may have never worked with a security team, never met a CISO. Uh, so, if you don't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what a CISO does on, on a day to day basis? And uh, having having known you, I know you 
you, you collaborate often with different CISOs all across the spectrum of industry. So you might also share what are the, uh, what are the pressing issues that CISOs are thinking about today? Wow, there's just so many of them. Um, so let me, uh, let me talk a little bit about the, the you kind of have two different kinds of CISOs. Hmm. Um, you have one that's very uh, hands-on and technical. Uh, they kind of came up through the ranks from a technical position. Uh, they came in from help desk or systems or networking, and they were they, they were really good at security. And they, they 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 put that time in, and they grew in the position, and they grew up to a CISO level position. And they're they're still very much a technical CISO. Um, then you have the strategic CISO. Uh, came from a, maybe a management position, uh, a leadership position, and they moved into being a CISO kind of a broader term, you know, they might have, the way I think about it, the way I look at it is a lot of times a technical CISO is that person plus two or three security engineers, ah, security yeah. analysts, very small, they're, they're lightweight, they've got to really kind of do some tactile things in the organization. Uh, the strategic CISO may have 50, 60, 70 people, uh, multiple management level positions underneath them, and whole separate teams, identity access management. They may have a vulnerability assessment team. They may have an engineering team, an architect's team. Um, so that's kind of the, the breakdown of the two different kinds of CISOs. Uh, you know, of course, they, there's a lot of mix and a lot of overlap on things. Um, a, lot of the, the, uh, a lot of the people that I interact with, especially in higher education, is very much that, that, that that tactical CISO, that technical, I mean, they've got small teams, uh, not a lot of funding, not a lot of resources, and they're trying to kind of get everything done. Um, I mean, the ultimate goal for a CISO is to protect people. Uh, you know, I say this a lot. I know you've heard me say this many, many times. You know, our job is to protect people. Now, a lot of times that's protecting the systems that we use in service of people. But as it relates to the network, life safety systems, servers, data, privacy, you know, data, you know, PII, those are all things that we deal with that's in our wheelhouse for protecting, um, maintaining, you know, you think about the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, you know, that goes along with services and data. Um, and we, that our job is to kind of manage that, think about that and deal with that on a daily basis. Well, one of the things I love about some of the, the message that you spread in a lot of your presentations, for those that don't know Jonathan, he's very active in the community with, with speaking seminars, et cetera. And, and you, Jonathan, you are the only security professional that has made, that, has made that connection between IT and, and physical security. The only one I've come across that made it such a priority to focus on human safety. And uh, when, I, when I heard that for the first time, you completely caught my, got my attention because we often think about technology, I think, we think about technology in isolation and don't make that connection yeah. with the impact of people. So that's that's a really powerful connection, I think. I, you know, I, I did a, uh, I went down, a friend of mine called me up, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, and he says, hey, would you uh, would you mind coming down? We're, we're just getting into security. You know, my team, he, he's a he's a CIO, he, he does a great, he does a great job where he's at. He says, we're just getting into cybersecurity, thinking about it, thinking about what we need to do. And, you know, would you, he asked me if I'd come down to do a tabletop exercise with him. It's like, I'd love to. So I drove down. Uh, I spent the whole day with him. I did a, a tabletop exercise in the morning. And then I did my, my hacker tool show and tell in the afternoon, just for fun, you know, him and his staff. And, you know, anyway, but one of the things we did uh, for the tabletop exercise, um, now this is IT based. This is a bunch of IT people. But the, uh, the tabletop, they had, the scenario was um, a help desk person found a folder with the wrong permissions on it. Not, not so crazy. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. But the scenario ended up people died. Wow. And so we, we sat around the table and we worked through the scenario of, okay, let's think about you know, we have this folder, how did it get changed? What data was there? And, you know, of course you have a tabletop, you know, kind of a, a script that you go through. And uh, the, the twist that I put in it is the folder had student data in it. The permissions got changed by a domain admin, a user accounts. 
And through this process, the data got released publicly. Um, a student's physical location was in that data because it was PII. And it was used by an angry boyfriend to go find someone and do bad things. So it was, it was an interesting tabletop exercise. And by the end of the exercise, the CIO, who, you know, I love to death, he turned to me and he says, you know what? I really hate you right now because <laughs> the one thing that I've always grasped onto is no one died because of mist a mistake in IT. Mm. And now he can't use that anymore. So he called me up about a week ago and he, he says, you know, listen, you're uh, that, that whole interaction that we had, you know, it was four five, six hours, whatever it was, it completely changed his whole department's mindset and what they do in their day-to-day -day IT functions. Now they're looking at stuff, like you said, like, you know, the life safety things, you know, the network, the data, the services that they're providing. You know, here's an example. Um, I, I may have told you this story years ago, but I had a, uh, I was doing some consulting and I had this uh, senior network engineer who came to me. He says, we, we need to drop the network for three days. We need to take our core network down for three days. I was like, whoa, that's a long time being down. And so I asked him, I was like, well, why do we need to do it? He goes, well, we need to do updates. We need to do this, this, and this. And it's like, okay, well, okay, I understand that. But we can't, we can't take the network down for three days. It's just, it's not possible. And he got really angry. Oh, frustrated. He got frustrated. And let's go, well, let me ask you something. What do you think that means? When you say take the network down, what does that actually mean? You know, what's it mean to the end user? You know, how are they going to function? He said, well, what that really means is they just don't get porn for three days. That's <laughs> like, okay. So, all right, I understand. So let's, let's think about this a little differently. So I brought up, I said, let's just pick something simple. All of our fire alarm systems are on the network, right? Yes. Okay, so if we take the network down, those fire alarm systems don't work. So we have to post fire guards. Um, it's a common thing. You know, if you have a building that someone is sleeping in and you don't have fire alarms, you know, set up in, I mean, in terms of like dorms and apartments and stuff like that, then we post a fire guard 24-7 um, mm -hmm. while that building is down in case there's a fire. Someone can go beat on doors and say, hey, you know, get up, let's get out, you know, there's fire. So we actually calculated how many buildings we had, how many people, how many buildings, how much overtime we would pay security guards to come in and man those buildings 24 seven, you know, for the three days. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this, to pay someone to do this. After we did all this, I said, okay, we, we had a number. And I was like, your downtime is going to cost this organization, let's say $300,000. I don't remember what it was, but it was a good chunk. I said, are you prepared to pay for that out of your budget? And he said, we don't have that. And it's like, exactly. And he goes, well, you're right. I never thought of it as a safety issue. I never thought of it as we need to do an update, an upgrade, and how that might affect the, the physical safety of an individual that is in our area. So we ended up, he, uh, he found a way to do the upgrades, no downtime at all. So we did the updates. We did a rolling update for the devices. We got it all pushed out. I think we did it over a, a kind of a five-day period, but we had no outage whatsoever, and we still got everything updated. But it was a viewpoint. Now, I, I've said it many times, you know, in my, you know, if I, either in my presentations or whatever, there's not a lot of IT people that go into IT because they like working with people, you know, and I know that sounds kind of funny and it, it kind of is, but, you know, I, I, for years and years and years ago, I went into law enforcement and I knew going into law enforcement that one of the reasons why I did it is because I, I want to help people, you know, I want to do that job. I don't know of a lot of people that go in IT with that mindset. They don't go in saying, hey, I want to help people. 
you know, they, they like computers and they like programming, they like doing software applications or they want the money. But a lot of times people don't think about that they're dealing with systems that have people's lives involved in it. And that's, I think, that's one of my major pushes in, in everything I do is thinking about the ramifications of our decisions. Now, the reality is uh, when we talk about um, moving forward, you know, whether it's compliances, whether it's uh, breaches or you know, ransomware attacks or you know, any of those things, there is a human element that we absolutely have to think about. And it's a human element because you know, you, I ask this question a lot and I won't go into details, but has anyone ever died because of a data breach? And the answer is yes. You know, I ask that question and I usually get a bunch of no's. I don't think so. Maybe not. Maybe There has been. There has been deaths because of a data breach. If I ask, has there ever been deaths because of ransomware? And the answer is yes. I mean, we, we know that there was one not too long ago, uh, many months ago now, but the hospital had to shut down because of ransomware. Yes. Someone had to get diverted and they passed away. Now, that's terrible. And what I mean by that is a decision that was made on the IT side possibly led to the death of an individual. That's really hard for an IT person to think about. You know, hey, I made this decision and someone died. Now, there's a lot of pieces to that. I mean, the, the, you know, the ransomware, they didn't get their patches, they didn't push patches, whatever. You know, there's a lot of things there. I'm not saying one person was affected by that. But I will say that as we move forward, when we're thinking about liability, we're thinking about negligence, that is something that we have to think about is will the decisions that IT or IT security or compliance, if they make that decision and it leads to harm to someone else, what are the effects of that? And I don't think that that's something that we've really thought about a lot. I think some of us have. I think we've discussed it, but as an industry, we haven't really gotten there. I'm not surprised that your background in law enforcement really inf informs the, this viewpoint that, that to protect and serve, uh, being, being a core tenant as, as, a, as an LEO. Um, I love your approach, John. It's very holistic. And I, I think any internal auditor, risk professional that in, in some way, evaluates processes, tries to form a, a large risk assessment to figure out what's important from a resource perspective, well, that, that, that would cover what your emphasis is. So we just need to shift our minds and, and expand our thinking and realize it isn't just right. applications and data, it's also the, the indirect correlation to systems. So I really love, really love your approach. And I, I think yeah. you, you laid out a great way. Everybody knows that the systems job is hard, <laughs> all the many things. <laughs> you've covered from beginning <laughs> to end. I am just completely humble. Go ahead, Jonathan. Right. No, I mean, it really is. And it is something that is changing out there. You know, the, the whole idea of privacy, you know, the, the, the growth of privacy, the growth of privacy compliance. I'm not going to say starting with GDPR because it started much before that. But, you know, you look at GDPR, CCPA, all these privacy regulations, you know, what do they really mean? You know, a lot of people have, a, a, have you know, a lot of concerns, a lot of frustrations with GDPR. And, uh, and a lot of them think this is, you know, red tape, you know, this is, these are just policies. This just makes my life difficult. This is, you know, hard to do, hard to deploy. I, uh, I was one of the first people in Oklahoma certified in GDPR back years ago, the CIPPE. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a certification about the, uh, the European law privacy laws or European privacy laws. And so, um, but when I took the test, I, I failed it the first time. And, and, you know, and I have no issue saying that I failed it. it the, the issue was I didn't know the history. So I did all the privacy stuff. I knew all the privacy laws. I didn't have the history. So I went back and I studied and I studied. And I said, I started learning the history of privacy, of not only the European laws, but also just privacy in general. And it made so much sense. So, you know, of course, I do this whole thing about history of privacy, but let me ask you just, you know, for the fun of it, um, where do you think privacy in our current mindset really started from? We'll do it from the from European because that's kind of where some of this started. But if you just had to take a guess, you know, where do you think, how far back do you think it goes? Oh, gosh, Jonathan, that is a... That's a tough one. I, I, 
I, I feel like I want to say, I mean, we, we, you and I have talked a little bit about this, and, and I, this may seem like I'm cheating, and I am totally cheating here. Are we making the connection to World War II? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, there are some things in the past before that, um, but World War II was really the, the, the game changer for European law. Um, it started with the, uh, you know, after World War II, um, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And it was a direct response to the Holocaust and to all the things that had happened and all the Jewish people that were murdered, you know, and, and there's a lot of pieces to it. And, you know, we don't yeah. go into it in this particular scenario, but it started from there. And then that worked its way down. There's a whole, there's a linear progression of these privacy laws, starting with that, the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, all the way down to the Data Privacy Directive, and then to GDPR, and then from GDPR going over to CCPA and the Brazil Privacy Law and the Maine Privacy Law, the Virginia Privacy Law, and all these different. It all kind of came from these tenets that were put in that UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and it, it basically is a response to World War II. And, and the things that happened, and, and I mean, think about it. We don't want the Holocaust to ever happen again anywhere. You know, we don't want a group of people murdered because of their belief systems for any reason, you know, whether it's a religion or anything else. Um, and there are some issues, some technical issues that I get into in other presentations about where kind of some of those you know, the, the data breaches happened in, the, in that time frame and such. But, you know, we don't want that to happen. So that the right to privacy is very, very important to European law. And it's growing in support around the world. But the reason why it's so important is because it's dealing with people. It's dealing with people's lives. And back, back uh, to your emphasis on safety. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, absolutely. It's a surprise. Yeah. So I, I love... I love the the visiting of history because it provides context that we otherwise don't have, and it seems right. uh, so. We we underprioritize privacy. Right. So I love that emphasis, Jonathan. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I, as you as you were explaining, the many things that you do as a CISO, you, we we just had a good few minutes here covering privacy. You covered uh, generally the different attacks happen, so you have to worry about those things. There's so many different pieces to the puzzle. And I wanted to ask you about frameworks. In the, in the audit community, we, we, we use frameworks, and there's one in particular that, that's very famous, very famously known, known as the COSO Integrated Internal Controls Framework that we use to take a company and break it down to multiple parts and basically simplify all the moving parts in the machine known as a corporation or an agency. So we have some in cybersecurity, but as an expert, uh, not only... Uh, are you a, a security professional? You're boots on the ground security professional. You're that technical CISO. What what are some of the frameworks you think are, are, are very valuable to to the, to the audit community to lean on to help with cybersecurity oh. auditing? And, uh, and you might you might perhaps say you know which one's your favorite? Okay, so that's a hard one. Um, so let me let me tell you a little bit about my history with frameworks. When I started at CISO. Uh, we didn't have a security program. I didn't have anything. There was nothing. I started my security program with a bunch of Raspberry Pis and a prayer. You, you might define uh, what a Raspberry Pi is for folks. A uh, Raspberry Pi <laughs> is a little tiny computer. There uh, you this go. is actually one with a touch screen on it. Um, I have another one around here. Um, Folks, you can buy this on Amazon or the vendor of your choice for super cheap. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, so these are little little tiny computers. Uh, that's all they really are. They're they're kind of a uh, a small little tool. Um, I use them in a couple of different ways. I use them in training. I use them as sensors. I use them anyway. It's we can go all on that some other time. But um, I didn't have a lot of money, so I just had a little bit of money and a little bit of a hope that I could do something better. So when I started looking at um, frameworks, I actually landed on the PCI ESS. Uh, PCI. And, and this, is, this is for companies, organizations that have to process data, uh, card data. And uh, this is credit card data. Yep, absolutely. Uh, if you handle credit card data, then you need to be PCI compliant with the, the uh, PCI DSS. Um, so basically all the, the card brands got together, you know, the Discover, the Amex, the you know, MasterCard, all these different ones. They got together and says, okay, guys, we need to have an industry regulation that's common across all the things. 
and have these standard security requirements that everyone has to follow. That's the, D the DSS. Um, so effectively, PCI has 12 tenants um, that it, it, it says you need to do. You know, things like um, don't use default passwords, have a firewall, monitor your logs. I mean, these are simple things. Well, when you when we think about the uh, the CIS twenty, you know that's another set of uh, frameworks that has twenty things in there that we have to. I think it's actually CIS eighteen now, but still yeah, yeah. twenty things we have to think about. But the PCI DSS only has twelve, so I started with it. Now, if you have to protect credit card data, the, your credit card holder environment, um, a certain way, my thought was well. If I have to implement these controls, might as well go ahead and implement the controls across the board for data that is important to us. So I started with PCI. Um, it was great. And it was it, it is that minimum level of, hey, do we have a firewall? Do we manage it? Do we, do we collect logs? Do we look at them? Uh, do we use default passwords or do we change them? When do we change them? You know, these are basic fundamentals, non-negotiables almost when we're dealing with cybersecurity controls. So, well, so you're then, saying even if you don't store or process card data, you're thinking you're recommending this is a great framework to start with. Absolutely. In fact, when I do outside consulting, I start with the requirements of PCI. Interesting. I don't call them that. I mean, I say, hey, these are 12 things we need to look at. So when I do a risk assessment, depending on the organization, it's a small mom and pop or a small to medium business or even personal. I do some personal stuff. I start with those 12 requirements. You know, sometimes they don't make any sense because it's not available in that environment. But I start with those 12. And then as you get more mature, then you can go into the CIS 18. Then you get a little bit more mature and you go into NIST. And you get a little bit more mature and you go into ISO. That's kind of how I do it. Um, but I'll tell you. They build on one another. If you do the the twelve pretty good, then when you get into the CIS eighteen, you're kind of partway there. If you can do the CIS eighteen pretty well, eh, you're pretty you're you're the getting there on this, and then so on and so on. So you keep just building and building and building in these processes. I, I love it. I love it. I love the the your approach because it, it's a progression. I can imagine for anybody who has. Any IT auditor, security auditor that has enough technical chops to be able to, within the organization, perform cybersecurity audits, starting with the NIST CSF, the NIST cybersecurity framework, that has to be overwhelming right off the bat. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. There, there's a lot of pieces to it. And, and here's the thing. Not all the pieces make sense in an environment. It can, but you're going to find a lot of security professionals that have never done any of that stuff. They don't know that hey, these are some things you have to think about in terms of these controls because they're not there yet. You have to start with the I, start with just a few things, the basics of PCI. And again, I don't call it the PCI when I'm working with people. I just say, okay, we need to think about these 12 things. And then we go, okay, now let's think about these 18 things. Okay, now let's think about, um, well, depending on what we're doing, it might be the, the FARS 15, if we're doing like CUI or something out of NIST 171 or something like that. But we say, okay, let's think about these things. And again, here's an example. If you go into an organization and I say, hey, do you guys have a firewall? Yes, we do. Okay. Do you have default deny? What's that? Okay. So let's, let's go and see what you are doing on your firewall. Then we start looking, but... I mean, if you just think about PCS, you've got to have a managed firewall. Do you actually look at it? Do you go in there and go, oh, I'm seeing a bunch of stuff here. Maybe we need to put a block in. Or do we block everything and only open up certain things, which, of course, is the, the ideal situation is doing default deny. Um, but if you go into an environment and you ask them, hey, do you have a firewall? I don't know. If you walk in with a set of NIST controls, <laughs> They're going to go. I, I don't know any of these things. Okay, so let's 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 talk about this, some of these basic things because here's the reality: um, when we're talking about real security controls, you know, I'm not talking about necessarily hitting all the check boxes of a framework. I'm just talking about real attacks, real defenses. You can eliminate a lot of risk, not everything, but a lot of risk by just doing some basic things. Multi-factor 
Excellent. You know, multi-factor is a huge one. It, it, it mitigates a lot of the attacks that are coming in on a minute by minute basis. How many organizations still haven't deployed multi-factor in their environment? It's easy to do generally, you know, it, it's easy to do in most environments. Um, and it just, it, it solves so many problems. Does it open a few extra? Yes, it does. So, you know, nothing is perfect, but it solves a lot. That's just one thing. Put a firewall default deny, put in multi-factor, put in some log analysis, some basic log analysis, and you could do a lot. You know, even, even basic level security analysts can do a lot with just those three things. Well, the, the emphasis on the basics to me is powerful because it sounds like it's easier to sell. If I am your yes. prospective client and you, rather than you tell me, look at this fancy framework, you say, I have these 12 tenets, these 12 principles. So I love yep. that because clearly part of our challenge, you as a security officer, uh, myself as the auditor is how we convey the message. Yeah. So I love, I love that approach. So let's, let's go with a scenario. Uh, oh, and by the way, for the folks that aren't familiar, uh, you mentioned CIS top 20, now top 18. CIS stands for Center for Internet Security. Is that correct, Jonathan? Uh, it is. I still call it the SANS top 20 yeah. because that's just how I've always known it. Old school, yeah. So SANS, a different yes. organization, uh, the founders yep. of the uh, of that framework, now CIS and the uh, NIST uh, CSF. I, I always forget what NIST stands for, but if you look up NIST CSF or NIST Cybersecurity Framework online, you can find it. Now, I yeah. want to... I want to pivot to a practical viewpoint here from the perspective of internal audit. So let's say I, the auditor, have worked with you as a CISO or just I, mm-hmm. the, the auditor, have on my own determined I want to go with the, those, those basic 12. Yep. Uh, what resources are out there for auditors to, to be able to proceed with evaluating an environment, with asking specific technical questions? We're going to go with the assumption that the auditor has some basic technical competency to figure this out. So does PCI or is any, any other third-party resource that shows not just the framework content, but for example, specific audit programs, specific questionnaires, any resource like that that we can leverage to move forward? So here's my recommendation on that. Um, doesn't specifically answer your question, but I think it will in a slightly okay. different perspective. From an auditing requirement, you take this. I have the 12 over here on my board. So if I look over here, that's, that's why. When you take a security control, whatever it is, and the framework are telling you, you should be doing a security control. There needs to be, you have to understand that question of why. So here's an example. Do you have a managed firewall? That's a simple question, right? Do you manage your firewall? Do you have a firewall, first of all? And do you manage it? But the reality is I can have a firewall and if I have all the rules disabled and it's allowing you know, inbound, outbound, no restrictions, do I really have a firewall? So the question really is, is do you, do you monitor, understand and limit traffic back and forth on your network. Now, when a CISO asks, do you have a firewall? That's really what they're asking. But when I'm talking to outside people that aren't, so, you know, if I'm talking to a small to medium business or if I'm talking to a person, you know, just in their home, it's like, do you limit traffic back and forth on your network? Do you block stuff from coming in and limit stuff going out? a lot of times they don't even know what that means. So from an audit perspective, I think the biggest thing that I, 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 when I interact with the auditor and I've got great relationships with our internal and external auditors, you know, I, I love working with them. They're extremely helpful to me in getting my job done. Um, When we get in a room together, we can really have those conversations. And those are really important to me when I see, when I do stuff on the outside and I'm in an auditing position for them, depending on if I'm doing a risk assessment on them, that's the question I ask because they're not CISOs. They're not technical people. So when an auditor comes in, I think the biggest thing that's going to help them is not to only know what that control is, but why is that control important in a way that's not a technical reason? Um, 
Here's a perfect example. If I said, if the control is, do you change default passwords? Now, as a CISO, you ask me that, I go, well, absolutely. But if you take someone who doesn't have any technical bearing, if they've never done any technical stuff, and you says, hey, do you change your default passwords? A normal person would probably go, yeah, that's probably a good idea. But do they know why? If the auditor can come in and say, hey, I can generally find default passwords out in documentation that's out on the internet. And if we can find it here, let's, let's look up, let's, uh, let's say you have a Cisco blah, blah, blah switch. And I go do a search and I find a default password or maybe it doesn't have a password or whatever the default thing. But if I can find that default password and use that to log into your system, then that's a bad thing. And I think anybody, when you're talking with them, knows that that's a bad thing. So I think it's important for the auditors to be able to know what you're actually asking them and why it's important. You know, do you change your default passwords? Do you have a firewall? Do you look at your logs? That's another one. Yeah, I, critical. You log, log analysis, you know, that's a huge one. But what does that really mean? You know, when I go in, I say, okay, well, where are your logs? You know, what, what logs are you, what do you have? And they go, oh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, okay, well, let's look on your firewall and see all the different devices that have connected to your network. And I pick, you know, okay, these, these three ones, can you tell me what those are? No, I don't know what those are. Well, that's log analysis. I mean, in the very basic level, it's like, hey, these three things have connected to your network. Why? Um, I love bringing up off logs, you know, on a box. And we look and say, okay, look at all these accounts that have tried to log into your account. It's coming from this IP address. Why? What, why are they connected to you? I don't know. I don't know who that is. Again, it's so basic and so simple of log analysis, but it's so incredibly impactful to that organization that you can go in and say, hey, do you do log analysis? They may say yes. They may say no. But if you engage in that conversation just a little bit more and say, hey, do you look? At your authentication logs, do you look on your Windows box on port 22 or 3389 or whatever and explain what those are? Or do you look on your, your router to see what devices it connected? You know, do you do it daily? Do you do it weekly? Do you do it monthly? You can break down. And, and, and here's the thing. Every interaction I have with someone, whether it's consulting or here on campus, I want them to walk away with either an extra light bulb that goes off or a thought process that's different. Because if I can make them think differently about the things that we do, hopefully that will make my lot, my job easier. <laughs> that's what I want anyway. <laughs> but they're thinking a little bit differently of like, oh, that's why we need to have firewalls or, oh, that's why we need to look at logs once in a while or, oh, that's why we need multi-factor. That, that's kind of what I would do from that auditing perspective of know why those things are important. And when you get into NIST and ISO, there's a lot of things. And there, there's a huge amount of things you've got to know about. But a lot of times that's all defined, you know, of what it is and what controls you need to look at and how do you test those controls. And, and if you're comfortable with that, if you know why you're doing that and you can explain it to someone that may not know why, then that makes the whole experience that much better. I like it. And I, I suspect, Jonathan, the it, it's easy to fall into the trap as an internal auditor, as, as an evaluator, regardless of what position title you have. It's easy to fall into this trap of, of treating the issues as a checklist, marking the box. And your, your, your point here is we know the whys, and then we're less likely to treat it as marking the box. There's more purpose and, and impact and, and the reason behind it. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate that. Now, I want to, I want to get your thoughts real quickly on, uh, now you, Jonathan, you, you shared your background with us in the very beginning, and, and your degree back in the day it was not in technology. It was in business, right? Yeah, it was a okay. business management degree. Yep. Excellent. I love that. I love that because we, we have, just like security has an undersupply of security professionals, audit has an undersupply of folks with IT and security skills. So do you have a, any suggestions real quickly for how does someone without a technical background work on these technical chops and eventually get to a point where we can ask these really important questions to assist it? 
do it. That's the key issue. Uh, I tell this because I, oh, I work in higher education, so I've got students here. Uh, you know, we try to mentor students into going and getting great jobs and things. When I was working at the help desk and I had students come in and they would come to me and say, listen, I am never going to get any money for playing the piano. That's what my degree is in is playing the piano. And she was wonderful at it. I mean, she was she could play. Anyway, she she was really good, but she knew she was never going to make a living playing the piano, but she loved it. So she wanted to work at the help desk to get some skill sets so she could go out and find a good job that she could work to pay for the fact that she wanted to play the piano and she wanted to do a great job at that. And she turned in one of my best technicians. Excellent. Um, so when I talk to students and I tell them if they want to get into security or audit or any of these, go do a year or two years or three years, maybe as entry level, maybe as a student, go do that job for some time. You learn so much a year at a help desk or a year at a call center about computers, about working with people, about how systems work. Um, and you grow from there. You know, I, I find a lot of times when you get um, new employees that they've never had a job um, and they want a kind of that mid-range level technical position, a software engineer, an IT engineer or something like that. And they're great. They're a go-getter. They, you know, they they really want it. They, but they just don't have the experience. And there's a lot of value in that experience. There's a lot of value. You learn a lot by just doing the work. Um, here's an example. If I were to say to you, Julio, um, I want you to, I need I I need to image a hundred computers. So I need to image them. I need to get an operating system on them. I need to get them out to a, uh, a department, uh, maybe a lab or whatever. If you've never had any experience in that, you have no clue how long that's going to take. You know, it could take point. two months. It could take six years, depending on how people work. Um, but whenever I'm talking to someone that's even done a little bit of help desk, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can image each computer in about an hour. So if I can do six computers at a time, you know, that's six, you start doing the numbers, carry the one, do this. It's like, okay, I can get that done in about four days. So give me an extra two days for buffer. I can get this done in a week. That's not something that you can teach someone. That's not a, a multiple choice question there. That's something that's like, they have worked it through in their head because they know how long it takes to do a computer. They know how long it takes to deploy software. They know how long it takes to go work with a user to get their stuff moved over. That is extremely valuable. And I'll tell you why it's important for, for us. So I'm a security, I'm a security guy. When I go to the help desk and I say, hey, we need to re-image all of these computers and we need to put encryption on them all. Now, a security person or even an audit person can walk up and say, hey, you guys need to put encryption on all your machines. Let's say you have 5,000 machines. How long is that going to take you? It's going to take you a long time. They may know that. They may not. They may go, yeah, 5,000 machines is a lot, but can you do the math? And you go, okay, well, that's two hours per machine. You know, that's 10,000 hours to start dividing it out. How many people is that? How much salary is that? How many... So I think it's really important to have a little bit of background. I'm not saying to be an IT engineer. I'm just saying have a couple years experience in doing some work, even if it's an extra job, even if it's volunteer. You know, I've known a lot of people that volunteered their time at non or not profit nonprofits or not for profits, and they got some experience there. They understand now how to deploy computers, how to deploy operating systems. Um, that, I think, is one of the biggest things that people can take away. If they're doing anything in IT and they're working with people, having just a little bit of experience in it goes a long way. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only way of doing it. Um, I've seen people that they went and they started doing training as a student and they did their A+, their SEC+, their NET+, uh, pen test plus, and they became out and they were great at what they did. Um, that doesn't mean that they have all the skill sets they're going to learn by doing it for a couple of years. 
because you learn that social interaction. You learn that that project management, being able to spec out projects. How long is that going to take you? Uh, you got to do the math in your head. Doing reports, engaging, uh, taking criticism. You know, I, you know, auditors don't always have the friendliest exchanges with organizations. No, you know, never heard of that. Yeah, never. <laughs> I mean. I love our auditors and I'll tell you, um, I don't know if he'll ever hear this. So he knows who he is. Um, we had a really good interaction and we were, we were going forward on the report and, and it wasn't the best report. There were some pieces in there that we had to do different. Hey, you know what? That's the way it works. Um, I had someone else on the leadership team goes, well, do we have to do this? Even though the auditor tells us we have to do it. I was like, well, um, we shouldn't do it because the auditor tells us to do it. We should do it because it's the right way of doing it, you know, but it was very different mindsets. You know, my interaction with them was great. Their interaction wasn't, and they had it completely different. They were very confrontational about it. And it's like, no, 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 hold on. You know, let's, let's take the auditor out of the picture. This is just industry standard stuff. We should be doing these things. And so we were able to work through the, those frustrations and, you know, kind of move forward with the project. But um, that right there is something that you kind of get with experience. And I think it's important for people to that experience. Um, one of the things that I, I ask for on every person that works for me, whether they're a student or an employee um, or anything, I ask them to have um, at least one year fast food or retail experience, you know, just in their backgrounds. You know, if they had a job in high school, uh, maybe in college, and they worked at a fast food, McDonald's, Taco Bell, Walmart, Target, whatever. Um, I want them to have that experience because there's a lot of things you learn in that year about interacting with customers and management and processes that I think is really, really valuable. So I put that on all of my, at least my preferred qualifications on my jobs is one year fast food or one year retail experience, because I think it's a really valuable skill set. Very interesting, John. This is this is a very unconventional way to to upskill and to, to get this level of unique perspective that you you think optimizes the, the, the employee, the security professional. So I, I I love I love doing things out of the box. So I'm really glad you brought that up. But we we have a few minutes left, and what I want to do is to ask you. I know you're very busy with a variety of things you have going on in the community. Are there any specific upcoming events? Is there anything you want to share with folks about what you got going on in the near future? Oh, well, um, well, my, my year is kind of dying down. I just did a, uh, I just spoke at Inatech uh, a couple of, uh, I guess it was last week. Um, I believe, I had to check my calendar. I believe that was my last speaking engagement for the year. Um, I haven't counted them up, but I'm probably upwards of 35 or 40 speaking engagements this year that I've done. Um, which has been slacker. a lot of fun. Complete slacker. What's that? <laughs> Complete slacker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I, uh, I really like giving back to the community. I do a lot with ISSA. I do a lot with conferences locally. I do a lot of panels. I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Um, it kind of became my outlet, sort of. You know, work is stressful. The job is stressful. Uh, but I like engaging with like-minded individuals uh, out there in the world. Um, you know, I've got I've made some really great friends from around the country. Uh, I was I was talking to someone in Ireland not too long ago. We got connected up. He was he called me up kind of out of the blue, talking to me about privacy stuff here in the U.S. And you know, I had done some privacy presentations on stuff. So those are the sorts of things that I've been doing. I do I do a lot more. I am doing a lot more uh, personal CISO stuff. You know, one of the things that I think is really important out there is um, individual homes and families, um, personal uh, security risk assessments in their home and the stuff that they do for privacy and security, uh, but also small to medium business. I think a lot of that stuff gets uh, people don't focus on it. Um, and, you know, when we look at how many small to medium businesses there are out there and how many homes that are out there that are insecure or they, they're not protecting their privacy. That's one of my passions. That's one of my personal passions that I, I, I try to go and support to try to make sure that everything that I do for the university, that someone is helping them do on their personal level. You know, are you protecting your home router? Are you protecting your home computers? Do you have MFA on all your bank accounts? You know, all these different things that I help, you know, homes do or people do. Um, one of the other things that I do 
is uh, personal privacy. Um, you know, people will talk about privacy and maintaining privacy. There is a segment of people that need to have privacy. Um, they may be um, running from an ex-spouse. You know, they're trying to get away from, trying to start a whole new family. Maybe they were they were beaten or they were, you know, abused and they're trying to start a whole new life. I think those people, um, man or woman, you know, it doesn't matter. They, they have just as much right as everybody else to live a happy life and a free life. And sometimes that means that they need to protect themselves a little bit more to have that. And I, I like giving them the tools to do that, you know, making sure they have secure email, make sure they have a secure phone and make sure that they can do those things that they want to do and continue their life without the fear of someone coming and finding them. Um, so I, I try to do a lot of that. Um, that. That's kind of my background. That's what I like to do. Um, I do that here at the university for our students and our faculty and staff. Um, and I fear there's not enough of us doing it out there in the public for people, people's homes, people's small and medium business, things like that. So I, I try to focus on things like that. Now, I'm not surprised. It's, again, it sounds like your, your background as a law enforcement official it, it helps you, it shapes the, the, your passion to, for making a difference. So that, that is not a shocker one bit. Now, if anybody wants to learn specifically about any upcoming events, do you have a, a certain way you recommend you think folks should hit you up on LinkedIn? Is any particular preference? I say hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, my email sucks. Um, I have a <laughs> lot of, I get hammered on my email. especially my work. I've had it for 25 somewhat years. So it's just, it's out there. I, I, what I tell people is engage me on LinkedIn, you know, just do a search for Jonathan Kimmett. There's two of us, uh, but you'll find mine pretty easily. Jonathan Kimmett, Tulsa, Jonathan Kimmett, Oklahoma, however you want to do it. Um, I, I love engaging with people on LinkedIn. Um, I, yeah, I've had, I've, I've made some really good friends. In fact, I had a, a, a person kind of randomly reach out because I had one of my, or I had a certification that they were, they were working on or they were wanting to do. And, uh, they says, hey, could, could I ask you a question about this certification? Is it, is it worthwhile? Is it, you know, I, I don't know anything about it. And we got on and we've been talking for months now. She went through and she got her that certification. She loved it. Um, and now she's out there and she's helping other people get that certification. So it's a, I think the LinkedIn, you know, the community for cybersecurity, for privacy, I bet for auditors as well. I'm not so much in that in terms of that community inside of LinkedIn. But it's really strong and people engage a lot. I, that's what I really value about LinkedIn. Bottom line, do not email CISOs. They have thousands upon thousands of emails to sort through. And um, uh, I have, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you officially, I have, where is it? 17,178 <laughs> unread messages in my mailbox right now. There you go. Hopefully your bills are paid. Uh, well, listen, <laughs> Jonathan. <laughs> oh, so again, folks, reach out to Jonathan via LinkedIn. I've known him for several years. He is a wealth of, of, uh, of information, as you can tell. So we, I very much appreciate your time. Uh, so folks, thank you for being part of the podcast. Uh, rest assured, if you missed Trent Russell, he will be back in the next regularly scheduled episode, sharing all sorts of other goodies with the rest of the community. So thank you, Jonathan, for your participation. Thank you all for listening. And I uh, hope everybody has a great week. Yep. Thanks, Julio. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you please consider leaving a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on right now? It really makes a difference in helping to convince hard to get guests to come on the show. I did it and it only took me 16 seconds to give myself a five-star rating. So it shouldn't take uh, too much longer than that. Thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.